Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, June the 12th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, joined via Skype by healthcare guru Todd Campbell. Todd, as you know, I'm always thrilled to have you on this show. Um, but just on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you about our special guest and today's topic? Oh, I'm stoked. I'm up stoked. So I'll give it a, I'll get, I'm going to go to 11. I'm going to give it a I'm 13. Gonna, <laughs> I'm going to go spinal tap. It's one louder. It's going to be great. Sounds great. So for our listeners, I'm super excited to have none other than Brad Loncar, CEO of Loncar Investments, global expert on biotech, and a bio Twitter legend. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you certainly should. His handle at Brad Loncar is a must follow. Um, If you really want to be in the know and really cut through a lot of the noise that's in the biopharma world, uh, Brad is joining us for today's show so we can pick his brain about one of the biggest and what I consider one of the best healthcare conferences of the year. That's none other than ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology's annual conference. Brad, so glad to have you back on the show. Well, thanks for having me. And now that you set those expectations, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do here. But uh, Shannon and Todd, it's uh, great to check back in with you. And it's, it's always great to say hello to the Botley Fool community. So thank you for having me back. Yeah, it's always thrilled to be chatting with you, Brad. And for our listeners who may be unaware, just to set the stage, ASCO is really all about bringing together the who's who of cancer care Literally tens of thousands of people flocked to Chicago last week. Uh, You're talking about physicians, scientists, companies, patients, and, of course, investors. Um, I would say ASCO is probably a lot less horse and pony show than some other conferences that shall remain nameless for right now, Um, because this conference is really all about data in one of the hottest areas of investment and ultimately for patients, and that is cancer care. Um, Brad, before we dive into some of your your big takeaways from this year's conference, I feel like coming into ASCO this year, the expectations for it were, I guess, kind of muted. Um, some not really expecting any sort of you can you know knock it out of the park presentations or updates. But now that the conference is wrapped up and we've had a chance to kind of digest all the news. Holistically, would you say that this year's ASCO was a dud, or would you say that ASCO really kind of Underpromised and overdelivered for this year. I think definitely the latter. Uh, you know, ASCO is what you make of it, and you're right. So, forty thousand people go to Chicago for this. It's the largest conference for cancer research in the entire world, and we call this the Super Bowl. Companies save up their best data to present it here, and. The thing that was different this year compared to last year, and the reason why I think some people were incorrectly calling it a down year, is there were a few less blockbusters. You know, usually there's three or four presentations that change the practice of medicine for a certain type of cancer, and that was really missing this year. So, like, the big companies like the Mercks and the Bristols of the world, they had a lot of data, but nothing like spectacular like they have in the past. But the exciting thing is there were a lot of smaller companies this year that did have a lot of interesting things to say. And I think that's a sign of how this industry is changing. You know, uh, a term that you hear a lot these days is precision medicine. And you don't really need to be 
one of those big, gigantic companies to be a leader in cancer research like you used to in the past. For example, the winner of the last two ASCOs, so 2017 and 2018, was Loxo Oncology. And this is a company whose drugs literally treat hundreds of patients. Um, so it, it's really the smaller biotech companies that are shining at conferences like this now. So if you kind of understand that and, and go to the conference with that type of mindset, um, I, I think this year was exciting. And I, I think it's just a sign of the times. And another thing also is there's a lot more of these conferences throughout the year, and they're well covered by the media. And so, you know, a decade ago, if you wanted to make a splash, you kind of had to present your data at ASCO because that was the big event and that's where all the journalists were and that's where all the newspaper stories were written. And now you can pretty much present data anywhere and get good coverage and get it in front of the doctors that you want to see it. And so ASCO's role will always be important, but it's also changing somewhat too just because of the way that information it's out there today is different as well. You know, Brad, you, you brought up something interesting as you were talking there when you when you mentioned, you know, the ro- role of precision medicine and how that's kind of leveling the playing field. And one of the things that, that I guess struck me or I, I thing I wanted to ask you about is in the past we would come out of ASCO and we'd be saying to ourselves, wow, what a huge advance in non-small lung cancer. What a huge advance in breast cancer. And I'm curious, is there an indication that you felt like you walked away from ASCO and said, wow, we are we made some significant headway in you know based on this data in this particular indication. And is it is it is it the is it a big indication like that? Or is it like you said, it's precision and we're just talking about biomarkers and for the subgroup of patients within this indication? Well, there's two things like that that I would point out. I, I thought some of the more interesting data at ASCO this year that had huge medical re- relevance, it wasn't as much of a stock market story, is some of the long-term data that companies presented in some important cancers. And I think this was important and exciting because one unfair criticism of the cancer research industry and like pharmaceutical industry in general is that a lot of advances are incremental. You know, you hear a lot of stories in the news about a drug that extended, you know, patients' lives by a handful of months. You know, people say, well, gosh, is that really medically relevant? You know, these are incremental advances. And there were a couple of long-term studies that really showed that these researchers are making a huge impact on cancer care uh, in some important types of cancers. And the best example of this is non-small cell lung cancer. And You know, one thing we talk about a lot and one thing I'm a huge fan of is the immunotherapy drugs. So Merck has a big one called Keytruda, and Bristol has a big one called Opdivo. And at this year's ASCO, Merck presented five-year follow-up in advanced lung cancer. And 
That word advanced is very important. These are patients that have, you know, failed all kinds of chemotherapies and their cancer is, you know, sadly progressing. And now that these immunotherapy drugs have come along, in this study with Keytruda, at the five-year mark, uh, 23% of patients, so almost a quarter, were still alive. And that compares to historically, you'd expect 5% or less. So to get a quarter of the patients out to the five-year mark is really uh, something that we should be proud of. Um, we've really made a dent in, in lung cancer. And, you know, unfortunately, it's only a quarter, and companies now are trying to work on getting, you know, the other three-quarters patients uh, to respond to these by using the drugs in combination and everything. But still, that's a big, big thing um, that's happened. And uh, Roche had a similar thing in a type of breast cancer called HER2-positive breast cancer. So that's about uh, one-fifth, so about 20% of breast cancer patients have HER2-positive breast cancer. And Roche presented data from a big study called Cleopatra um, that uses a drug called Herceptin and another drug they have called Progetta. Um, and this was an eight-year follow-up, and nearly 40% of patients were alive. And a decade ago, that would have been unimaginable. And so that really, to me, is the one of the most exciting things to walk out of this conference is you have tangible evidence that there are certain cancers that are totally being changed um, over recent years. And I'm excited about that HER2 breast cancer space. Um, so one thing I think we'll talk about a little later is uh, there's a company called Macrogenics that had a HER2 drug called Margituximab. And they didn't have data at the conference, but there's a really exciting drug in this space that uh, AstraZeneca and a Japanese company called Daiichi Sankyo have called BS8201. It looks like it could be pretty revolutionary. This is what's called an antibody drug conjugate. And they announced that in late-stage breast cancer patients that are HER2 positive, they had significant advantage on this drug. Um, and we'll have to see the data later this fall. But AstraZeneca paid Daiichi almost $2 billion just to partner on this. Um, so... That looks really exciting. There's another company I follow called Timeworks that has a hair to uh, buy specific antibody in development. So this is one area where I think there's a lot of progress being made right now. So that's a space that I would watch closely. And so, of course, after every major conference, especially ASCO, there's always the debate that ensues that basically who won ASCO? You did have a lot of encouraging data. You summarized a lot of the, the big winners, but who would you say won ASCO this year? And then maybe a company that just didn't get the Wall Street love that it should have gotten based off of its data. Well, I think, and, you know, of course, you know, I look at this from like a medical perspective, but, you know, we're also stock people. Um, so, you know, maybe I'm a little biased when it comes to that. But one of the biggest stock movers, and I thought the most interesting data that I saw there was from a small company called IOVANCE. Uh, the ticker symbol on that one is IOVA. And this is exciting because they do what's called cellular immunotherapies. And 
a lot of your listeners might be familiar with the term called CAR T. Um, so, you know, there's a big company called Kite that Gilead bought for $12 billion. There's another company called Juno that sells you bought for $9 billion. Those are CAR T companies. And that also is a type of cellular immunotherapy. But the catch with CAR T right now, as exciting as it is, is so far, it seems to only be working in types of blood cancers. And the big question is, will, it, will CAR-T ever work in what we call solid tumors, so like lung cancer and you know kidney cancer, melanoma, and things like that? Well, this company, Iovant, has a cellular immunotherapy that's a little different than CAR-T. So theirs is called PIL, stands for Tumor Infiltrating Lymphocytes. And... The exciting thing about this is it seems to be working in solid tumors. So they already had some data in melanoma that we've seen over the last year or so that provided a hint. But the real blockbuster data that they presented at ASCO that really turned everyone's head is cervical cancer. So late-stage cervical cancer is a huge unmet need. And... They use this pill therapy, and you know I never like to get too nerdy into the science, but this is pretty cool. So you know when you have cancer, usually white blood cells, your immune system, what we call lymphocytes, usually are able to track it down and find it. But the problem is there's usually just not enough of them to really make a difference. And so what this company Iovance does is it takes a biopsy of the tumor and it sets separates out those lymphocytes, and it grows them into the billions. doesn't manipulate the cells in any way. And that's kind of a good thing, because these are cells that have already figured out a way to find the tumor. Um, so they take these cells, they grow them by the billions, and then they reinfuse them back in the patients. And in late-stage cervical cancer, in a very, you know, you always have to have the caveat, this is just, you know, dozens of patients, so we have to see more data over time, but 44% of women with late-stage cervical cancer saw tumor shrinkage, so responded to this drug. And just to put that into historical perspective, the last drug that was approved in that type of patient population, which was actually this Keytruda drug from Merck, only had a 14% response rate. So it's very exciting to see such a high response rate, especially in you know such a, an unmet need like cervical cancer. So I think that looks very promising. But the bigger picture significance of this is that there seems to be a cell therapy working in solid tumors. So this is something that we've been complaining about with CAR-T for years and years, and now it seems that somebody might have cracked that code, and maybe this pill approach will have, um, you know, promise in other types of solid tumors. Now we've already seen melanoma and cervical cancer, and Hopefully, they'll be able to try it in other things, which they are right now, and, and hopefully, it'll work in other things. So, that's a major learning, is that there's a cell therapy that seems to be working in solid tumors. In terms of the... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just I wanted to piggyback on that and, and see, you you mentioned you know I that, that company, and it, the shares actually responded pretty well to it. Um, do you think that do you think that there's more 
you know, gas in the tank for investors in that? Or are we just going to have to wait and see more data from more patients before we can say that? I think, I think two things. I think there are chances of partnering this more widely um, with large pharmaceutical companies has significantly increased now that they've presented this. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they have, you know, some type of partnership announcement or, or some announcement that they're expanding, you know, the, the research and development of this into more types of cancers. The, the biggest thing for them is uh, two things to watch out for this year. The most advanced uh, cancer that they're testing this is in, is in melanoma. And they've already started uh, treating the patients in the pivotal trial for that. And that will probably lead out towards the end of this year. And they're hoping to have this drug approved, you know, submitted to the FDA and approved as soon as, as late 2020. And so the number one thing is to watch how that goes uh, and to see the final data from the pivotal trial of that. In terms of the cervical cancer, they need to talk to the FDA to see if there's an expedited pathway for them to run, you know, a quick study and, and get this on the market. And a few days after they presented their initial data at ASCO, they received what's called breakthrough therapy designation from FDA. And so that was... Uh, that that was a nice sign to the market that FDA is probably going to be pretty accommodative about you know helping them get this you know into a pivotal study and you know maybe on the market sooner rather than later. So they'll be meeting with FDA to get the formal guidance on that over the summer. So we'll want to watch what that what that guidance is, um, and hopefully it'll be positive and. With that breakthrough therapy designation, my expectation is that should be. So those are kind of the official catalysts. And like I said, maybe we'll get a partnership or, or something else in the meantime. Um, but those are really the big things to watch with IOVANS. And, and Brad, do you think that is TILS the mechanism of action that has you excited for the remainder of 2019? I mean, we, we looked a lot at, we talked a lot about CAR T, obviously, in 2018. Coming into 2019, I thought we were going to be talking a lot more about uh, bispecifics. And, you know, the bite data that looked like it came out at ASCO wasn't necessarily uh, earth shattering relative to CAR T. Um, I mean, is there a mechanism of action that you're walking away from ASCO with and thinking, yeah, this is this is this area is the most exciting to me right now? Is yeah, it TILS? I, yeah, I would say a few things. So TILS for sure. The only catch with TILS is there's only one company that's really working on them right now, IOVAN. Um, there's another one, uh, CBMG, Cellular Biomedicine Group, that has licensed like a second generation pill technology from the National Cancer Institute, but they're not even in trials yet. So that, as far as pill goes, I have kind of a one company show. I am very excited about bi-specific. The catch with bi-specific is they're all in kind of first in human studies right now. And if, if, if anyone followed CAR-T closely, you'll remember a few years ago when CAR-T was brand new, there was 
a lot of initial problems with it, especially as it related to toxicity. So, like, one of the main side effects of CAR-T is something called cytokine release syndrome. And when the CAR-T drugs were in the very early stages of development, in the very first trials, there were a lot of stops and starts. You know, there were sadly, you know, there would be, like, patient deaths, and they had to stop the trial and figure out what was going on and, you know, try to administer this in a different way and to learn how to handle those toxicities. And over time, the CAR-T treatments got there. Um, so, you know, now with much more experience, um, with the, the those toxicities are, are much more manageable today than they were a few years ago. So that's exactly where the bispecifics are today. They're in the first human studies, and they're actually having problems with that same side effect, cytokine release syndrome. Like, what that means is basically these drugs put your immune system on overdrive, and it just, like, attacks, you know, everything, uh, you know, it goes overboard to a point where it's too dangerous and, and harms the patient. The body specifics are going through that right now, but I expect that they'll be able to figure it out just like the CAR-T people did. Um, and one thing we've learned with the CAR-T launches, so, you know, Novartis and, and Gilead's kite unit are, are already commercializing the CAR-T treatments, the fact that those are personalized and, you know, you have, you have very high logistical and also payer challenges with those, we really do need an alternative to them. And so I think that the market need for bi-specifics is very high. So the data right now seems, you know, not so hot, but that's normal. Um, so, you know, the, the CAR-T treatments went through the exact same thing. So I would still keep a close eye on those. There's a lot of companies that are, you know, conducting really great science that, that are working on this and will eventually get over it. Um, I think, you know, as, as I said, another thing I'm really excited about is this HER2 space. So HER2 is most commonly known for breast cancer, but there are other types of cancers like gastric cancer um, and, and colorectal cancer that express this as well. And there's a lot of interesting drugs in this space. I mentioned that AstraZeneca, the HE think the one, DS8201, and another one, you know, Shannon uh, asked earlier, well, is there a company there was a disappointment that maybe didn't get enough credit. I would point out uh, macrogenics. So this was one of the big stock decliners at ASCO, and I'm a, I'm a contrarian on this one. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan. So they have a drug called margituximab. And the idea behind this drug, margituximab, is one of the most important drugs, like, in cancer history, is called Herceptin. It was the very first CER2 um, treatment. And it's been around for decades, and, you know, it sells $5 billion a year, and, like, Roche has built this huge CER2 franchise behind it. And what macrogenics did is they said, we, you know, there's been advances in antibody engineering, and we think we can make a better Herceptin. So these are what's called monoclonal antibodies. And the best way to think about a monoclonal antibody is it's like a Y. There's like stem and two arms. 
And the stem is what's called the FC region. And that's what uh, macrogenics has focused in on with this drug, Margituximab. They have done what they call FC optimizing so that the stem interacts with the immune system better. And to their credit, they ran a legitimate phase three trial head-to-head against Herceptin in, bre- in late-stage HER2 positive breast cancer patients who weren't uh, who were no longer responding to other HER2 drugs. And head-to-head against Herceptin, this drug margituximab beat it. Statistically significant, it showed that it, um, it lowered the, the progression of, of the cancer compared to Herceptin. Now, the reason why the stock ultimately ended up going down is the margin of benefit is very small. So... For all patients, um, the benefit was only 5.8 months versus 4.9 months, Um, so less than a month's benefit in progression-free survival. But there's a a group of patients who are uh, kind of genetically predisposed to do better uh, with this type of strategy. Um, Those are called CD16A158F allele patients, and for them... The benefit was wider, so 6.9 months progression-free survival for margituximab versus 5.1 on Herceptin. So that was 1.8 months, and they've already, even though the data is not mature, they've put out some overall survival data. So for all patients, the overall survival advantage so far is about 1.7 months and about 6.8 for those for that specific group of patients, and. The market sold this off for two reasons. Number one, they said, well, you know, this is only, you know, the progression-free survival benefit is only like a month or two. Like, how clinically meaningful is that? And what I think the market is missing here is this isn't a benefit over a placebo. This is a benefit over one of the most important cancer drugs of all time. And I view it as an important proof of concept. They, you know, they said, we think we can design a better reception, and that's exactly what they've done. So it's like, you know, it's like saying you hit two more home runs than Babe Ruth. Like, you know, some people would say, well, it's only two home runs, but it's two more than Babe Ruth. <laughs> um, so that's, I think that's really the important proof of concept picture here. And the other, the other reason why that one sold off is. Um, for the group of patients that didn't have this genetic profile that um, that would suggest they they would respond better to this drug, the regituximab did not prove statistically that it was non-inferior. Um, and so what that suggests is that um, the company is going to have to figure out how to do testing to make sure that you know, this drug gets to that right group of patients, but it's 85% of all patients. Um, So, you know, if it was flipped, if it was only 15% of patients had this genetic profile, I would say that's a problem because currently that testing doesn't exist. But the fact that it's the vast majority like that suggests to me that they can figure out how to make a commercial go of this. So, I thought that was kind of one company that I understood the stock reaction um, because, it, you know, there were some elements of its data that were disappointing, but 
I'm going to take a contrarian position on that one. I, I, I think it's an important thing um, that they've kind of bettered for something, um, and, and I think that can be very valuable one day. So I would maybe watch that one to, to have some future surprises to the upside. Oh, and Brad, uh, Shan, right real quick before we jump to this next one, that just clued me in on it because, Brad, we were talking about overall survival. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we're going to get an update on overall survival from their trial later this year. If so, then investors are going to focus a lot of attention on that. That's right. So their trial is still ongoing, and there will be an interim look at overall survival later this year. And then next year, we'll get the final look at overall survival. And the stock market is looking very closely at that because regardless of what that overall survival number tells us, they're planning to file for approval by the end of this year. And so it'll probably be around this time next year that the FDA is reviewing this. And what theirs are saying is that the data is marginal enough and kind of wishy-washy enough that they don't think progression-free survival will be enough for the approval alone. Um, and so if this interim analysis later this year, it probably won't be conclusive on overall survival, but if it's still trending, like this first look at overall survival we just got at the conference who seems to be trending in the drug's favor, that could be the thing that pushes FDA over the top in giving this an accelerated approval. So you're exactly right. That will be a data point that will be coming out later this year, and it'll be a big one to watch, especially for the bears who, who don't think that, that this can get approved on TFS alone. Um, if that is, is at a minimum trending in the right direction, it might tip some of those um, you know, out of the bearish uh, camp. So we'll be watching that very closely. Yeah, and that um, for MacroGenX, that is ticker symbol MGNX for our listeners. Um, I do think that's a company. Um, seems to be either you're on the side of it's a lot of hype or you're saying this is the real deal. So a lot to watch there. Brad, one last question for you before we close it out. Um, of course, there's been a lot of fanfare, a lot of excitement surrounding liquid biopsies, particularly as a simple and non-invasive alternative to surgical biopsies. Any takeaways on the liquid biopsy space and what investors should be looking for moving forward? Yeah, I think the big companies in terms of ASCO and liquid biopsies with Grail. Um, so, so first of all, for full disclosure, this is not my area of expertise, but I do have a few takeaways. So first thing I would say is this is still very early. So Grail, for example, at ASCO, presented data from a study that did liquid biopsies on like 2,000 patients. And the important thing to know about this is it's, it's, they're going to have to run a study literally with hundreds of thousands of patients um, to really understand, you know, how accurate these tests are and, and whether they can get approved or not. So we're in the very early stages of that. And in fact, it's so early, the method that this company is using um, to do the cancer detection has recently changed. And at first, 
Well, when they kind of founded the company, all along they thought they were going to be able to look at DNA um, and use that as the basis of, of trying to make diagnoses. And they've, based off of the data they saw at this conference, they switched to something called methylation, um, which, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, it's like the fact that they're completely changing their method and how they go about this um, really shows you how preliminary it is. Um, but that looked, it looked pretty good um, for, like, you know, stage one cancers. They, they're correctly finding about a third of patients. And for stage two cancers, it's it's more like three-fourths. Um, so if those types of numbers hold up in larger studies, it would be a positive. You know, one thing, there's a few things that, I, that kind of concern me. Um, so the false positive rate, you know, nothing can be perfect, of course. And the false positive rate that they're going after right now is 1%. You know, they view that as an acceptable false positive. And, you know, that's fine, I think, for high-risk patients. But the, the entire idea behind liquid biopsy is, you know, you want to use this widely and on a lot of people to catch cancers very early. And I worry that with you know, having, you know, doing something like that on a wider swath of the population um, and having a 1% false positive rate for something as stressful and important as cancer, um, I, I'm not sure how that's going to be received, um, you know, in the medical community and, and in society. So I think that's, I think there's a lot of challenges that these companies still have to figure out. And one thing that's weird about Grail is, you know, this is a biotech unicorn. They've raised something like, $1.6 billion of venture capital, and the last valuation for the company was something like $3 or $4 billion. And, you know, as I mentioned, they just shifted their method of, of looking at this. They just hired a new CEO. Um, uh, uh, he's actually a name that's familiar, I think, to a lot of your listeners, Hans Bishop. So he was the CEO of Juno, um, uh, you know, until it was acquired by Celgene. And this is the company's fourth CEO in two years. Um, so that scares me, you know, that makes me wonder what's going on there when you have like a you know, $3 billion unicorn that's gone through four CEOs in two years. Um, so there's a lot of things that needs to get figured out about this. And, you know, another thing from a commercial standpoint is, is cost. You know, so the approach for liquid biopsies is to catch cancers early, it has to come at a very low cost um, to be used widely. So, you know, let's use an example, like uh, a really good diagnostic tool that's used today uh, for, for patients that have cancer is a foundation one test that does like genomic profiling of your cancer. And that costs about $6,000. Uh, but these are patients that already have cancer and that's a huge you know, clear value because, um, you know, they need their current cancer sequence. When you're talking about something like liquid biopsy, you're, you're talking about a, a population of users that's, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 times greater than that. And so, you know, what kind of prices are they going to be able to charge for something like this? So, and, you know, I guess in a, 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 a roundabout way, what I'm saying is the initial data is kind of intriguing, but 
I would view this as something that's very early, um, has a lot of has has a lot of barriers to get over, and we're just getting the very first looks at this. And um, you know, these companies need to hone their process and run huge trials to really figure out what the commercial utility of these things is going to be. So we're going to be talking about the development of liquid biopsy tests uh, for many assays to come before it's on the market, I think. Well, Brad, we will definitely have to have you back on the show to give us even more updates, not just with liquid biopsy, but really across the universe. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Full on. Full on. And thank you to all of our listeners out there for tuning in. That'll do it for this week's industry-focused healthcare show. Um, As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is being mixed by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, Brad Loncar, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on. Full on.